Bible reading tonight will come from 2 Corinthians, um, chapter 5, starting at verse 1. And you can find that on page 939 of the Bibles next to you. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, we, uh, when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan under the burden, because we wish not to be unclothed, but to further be clothed, so that uh, what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, even though we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we do have confidence, for we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we will make it our aim to please him, For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. And the second reading will come from John chapter 2, starting at verse 12. And you can find that on page 863. From verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they remained there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered uh, that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and will you raise it up in three days? but he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that, it had, uh, that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Over the past uh, few weeks, we have been looking at what it takes Uh, to stand and not just to stand but to uh, flourish in what we've called the gap. Uh, You know the gap, that uh, painful, draining distance between the way in our hearts and souls we know things ought to be and can be and in the good purposes of God were created to be, a world that works where love and kindness and grace are regular and reliable, where justice is done and wrongs are righted, where forgiveness is easily asked and given and misunderstandings are worked out in wonderfully uncomplicated ways. That's one end of the gap. 
And the other end is the way things actually are. Where so often what we experience is brokenness and even wickedness and often enough just boring, ordinary selfishness and thoughtlessness. Friends let us down. Bosses chew us and spit us out. Relationships fade in intensity. Neighbours complain about utterly trivial things. Churches turn out to be more interested in ego than in Jesus. And when you're in the gap, the nearly overwhelming temptation uh, is to attempt to collapse the gap. Uh, One version of collapsing the gap is to insist that Reality gets better, that it conforms to your expectation, whether that's the reality of your own behavior and you get really demanding of yourself or other people's behavior and you get really demanding of them. You become brittle. Or the other version, to collapse the gap the other way, is to give up, to become bitter and cynical and without hope and without joy. And the interesting thing about both of these apparently opposite reactions is that deep down they share the same structure. They're both fundamentally, fundamentally self-oriented. At heart, the temptation in the gap is always to turn inward, inward into yourself. Now, as we've noticed, the Apostle Paul is in the middle of a particularly acute experience of the gap. Uh, He's got failure in his career, he's got disloyalty, he's got life-threatening illness, and they're just the easy parts. And yet the gap doesn't overwhelm him. In fact, we saw last week that the power of the resurrecting God is such that the pain of the gap can actually be turned to good in a person's life. Not not so that we pretend that what's bad is good, That's, that's never the right way to go, no but rather that good is kind of squeezed out of bad. Or as the Apostle put it, we saw, even though your outer nature is wasting away, your inner nature is being renewed day by day. Day in, day out, you become a more beautiful, more grace-filled person. Right in the middle of the gap. And what the Apostle teaches us in uh, the third part of this extended treatment of the issue of resilience is that when that dynamic is at work in you, it gives you a tremendous focus and clarity to life. And in particular, it gives you the capacity to resist the pull of turning inward. It keeps you facing out. But it only works when you have the final piece of the puzzle in place. And that is a deeply operative hope. In the first half of chapter 5, the Apostle teaches us three very, very significant things about Christian hope. What it is, what it allows, and what it empowers. What hope is, what hope allows, and then thirdly, what hope empowers. Well, first then, what hope is. Uh, One of the most... um, confronting and refreshing things about uh, starting here at St. John's 12 years ago uh, was uh, the way that the uh, people here spoke in an utterly matter-of-fact manner about their own 
uh, impending death. Uh, it was quite weird. I was, I was, um, I'd been at university church uh, for many, many years. Uh, I knew university students mainly and, and then young workers. And, and there's one thing that university students and young workers know, which is that they're never going to die. I mean, they're never just going to die. They're just a room full of energy and they're just never going to die. It's just as simple as that. And so I came to here, and, and we have a memorial garden out here. You may have seen, it's got some scabby sort of little roses. And um, uh, what happens is that um, we put ashes after a cremation uh, into the ground in the memorial garden. And the um, uh, people of the church here would take me out and show me the plot that they had purchased for themselves that they'd already got reserved and they'd sort of talk quite gleefully about, I wonder how long it'll be before I'm there. Uh, and in, in this way, uh, these sept and oct and nanogenarians, right, we're talking 70, 80, there were some 90-year-olds, uh, Clary and Joyce. Actually, when I got here, there were about 16 Joyces. Uh, many of them are now out there. Clary and Joyce, the, the oldest members of the congregation, uh, uh, I mean, just beautiful, beautiful Christian people. Utterly countercultural, brilliant cultural radicals. Don't you think? Because if there's one thing as a culture that we do with death, it is to avoid it at all costs. Our strategy is pretty straightforward it's to put it as far as possible out of sight, to get people who are anywhere near it, somewhere other than near me. And then secondly, to distract ourselves for as long as we possibly can to make sure that no one ever thinks about it. Because death is the biggest gap that there is, right? Death is the biggest gap that there is. We know that life is good and that death is bad. But the one is so fleeting and the other is so inevitable. Uh, the Apostle Paul was equally matter-of-fact about his death. Entirely unsurprised by it. I mean, after all, you think, there really is very little to be surprised about, actually. Entirely unsurprised about it. He neither welcomed it, he didn't look forward to it, but he didn't fear it either. He wasn't scared by it. And what gave him that strength was his hope. Uh, you see how he puts it in verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Uh, the Apostle um, introduces the first of two images that he uses here to give us a handle on what Christian hope, ultimate hope, really is. Uh, the earthly tent uh, is the way that he uses to describe his own body. Uh, and it's, uh, he's totally aware of the fact that one day his, his body will be destroyed, just like every body's body uh, ends up turning to ashes or to dust, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's that, I mean, that's the prayer, right? I reckon probably the second most known prayer in the English language. Uh, he's, he knows his body will go that way. I mean, he might have thought, actually, it's interesting, there's a, there's a suggestion that he might have thought that, he would, um, that Jesus would return prior to his own death at one stage, but uh, it seems that that's not the case anymore. He doesn't have that expectation anymore. Uh, perhaps his own uh, recent near-death experience has made it clear that that's unlikely. And so he knows that his earthly tent will go the way of all flesh, but he says that's okay. He says that's okay because that's what happens with tents. Tents are cheap 
and they are temporary. No one makes it their long-term accommodation goal to live in a tent. That's not what you're dreaming of, buying and living in a really great tent. No, no, it's almost as though the apostle knew what Sydney housing obsession was all about, actually. Because he writes uh, that what lies ahead is infinitely better than a tent. Now, see how he describes it? What we have is a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In every way, in its uh, substance, it's a building, not just a scabby tent. Uh, in its origin, it's from God. It's, it's not even made by you know, the architect that designed my house, who's an award-winning architect, won the Wilkinson Award and a very fancy-pants New York sort of... Uh, nothing. It's made from God. And it's eternal. It's not perishable in every way. It's superior to the body that we live in now. That's the Christian hope. That you will be resurrected in a body that is as superior to the one you have now. And, and for some of you, you know, you might find this hard to believe that such a thing is possible. Looking at me, you find it, I think, a little easier to believe that such a thing is possible. But what the Apostle is saying is that the body that you will have then for all eternity is as superior to what you have now as a divinely constructed house made by God so well that it will stand for a gazillion years is superior to a tent. In other words, and it's very, very important to grasp this, that the Christian hope is not to be a disembodied soul that floats in heaven on a cloud. Uh, I, I mentioned the uh, memorial garden out there, and fairly uh, regularly I conduct these services where I, we, uh, you know, I, I inter the ashes of a family member. Um, it's um, one of those kind of moments, a very short service, only takes five or ten minutes, uh, but it's actually often very um, meaningful for people and quite emotional, actually, because it is the last moment of saying goodbye. It's the actual last concrete physical experience of this loved one. And the really interesting thing about the service is it's because it's a good biblical service, it mentions resurrection about every, well, actually it's more than every second sentence, more like two in every three sentences have the Christian hope of resurrection in it. And so when I do the service, I actually do this kind of little preface because it goes so quickly and um, the people who are there... Uh, have the view uh, so often, which is the view they get from the great conveyor of theological truth in our culture, which is the Simpsons cartoons, right? That what happens is we float off to heaven forever. Now, we'll come back. I've got, there's more to say about this. But, but I say, just keep a lookout because the Christian hope is so much more substantial than souls floating off to heaven. You put off an earthly tent, yeah, of course. And what you get instead is a divinely created house. 
And just to make sure we understand, Paul uses a second image. Uh, the second image is that of clothing, and it, it plays on the kind of Middle Eastern uh, fear, the, the taboo of nakedness. You know how, if you don't, don't, don't have, to have been to the Middle East very much to know that those guys really know how to get dressed. Right? I mean, they, they cover up, they really cover up, uh, and, uh, you know, it's to do with sun and that. But there's, there's a proper kind of, and I think our culture, frankly, could learn maybe a smidgen here, uh, there's a kind of modesty and a fear of immodesty, a fear of nakedness. And the Apostle says, um, to, to, to lose your body and just be a soul like that would be as, as, as just embarrassing and terrible and, and, and kind of shameful almost as being found naked. No, no, the Apostle says, what happens is we, we take off our clothes, but, but then we put on this, this magnificent, um, I'm, I'm tempted to say three-piece suit, but... Um, I don't think the Apostle Paul had three-piece suits in mind, really, uh, from his culture. It's this sort of overcoat that he'd be further clothed, gloriously embodied, not unclothed and found naked. And, and then just to seal it, Paul has this beautiful phrase that I think picks up both images. Uh, he says that what is mortal, what is mortal, what is feeble and temporary and breakable and prone to decline and to death. Not just your body, though that is your body. You, I know that you don't, you don't get that. You just think you're getting stronger and stronger. It's not true. You are going to turn into me. And what is mortal, Paul says, will be swallowed up by life. Isn't that just an awesome phrase? It's not that what's mortal gets replaced by life or that what's mortal will be thrown in the trash and a pure spiritual soul will finally be released. No, what's mortal will somehow be both included in and transcended, swallowed up by life. And of course, as soon as you say that, you realize that that's been God's project all along. That's what God is into in this universe, right? To make a world that is good and then a world that is very good, fit for his presence, fruitful and joyful and lifeful. And when you grab hold of that, it makes perfect sense that in the face of the destruction of this earthly tent by disease and death, the ultimate purpose of God and the ultimate hope for us is to not end up as floaty souls in the sky, but to be gloriously embodied with the bodily equivalent of a magnificent full brick architect design mansion created by the living God himself. That's your future, do you see, in Christ. That's your destiny. It's our hope. And Paul's point is that when that lives in your soul, when that lives in your soul, it changes everything. Now, one other point before uh, we see how it plays out, how it does change everything. Uh, Paul is clear about what his ultimate hope is, but he's also aware that there's what, what you might call, if you know this word, a penultimate hope, a kind of secondary um, uh, hope beforehand, what theologians have called uh, the intermediate state. Now, this is where theologians have been at their really most linguistically creative. Okay, So your present state is now 
and your ultimate state is resurrection. And so what's in between your present state and your ultimate state? Ready for this? It's the intermediate state. And the intermediate state is that time between uh, after you die, but before resurrection. And the apostle says, that he, he's, he's quite aware that um, while he's at home in the body, that is, while he's still at home in the earthly tent, he's away from the Lord Jesus. Jesus has been raised in glory. He's at the right hand of the Father. Uh, he's, he's not here present uh, in all his power and glory. And so there's a sense in which the apostle says he'd prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Post-death, but pre-resurrection. But Paul is not confused that, that that is somehow his hope. No, what it does is it personalizes this whole thing. You see, our hope is not just for an it. It is for a who. Do you see? Our hope is not just for an eternal resurrected body. Incredible and amazing as that is. No, our hope is to be with an eternal resurrected Lord. And there are two consequences of having this hope uh, driving in your heart, beating there. And the first is what it allows. You see it in verse 2, which is essentially repeated in verse 4, for in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. See how he mixes the metaphor? To be clothed with a dwelling. That's a funny thing to say, really, isn't it? Um, the, the really important thing is the balance that resurrection hope allows. Did, did you notice it? On the one hand, uh, the apostle groans. Or as he puts it, he groans under a burden. There is real acknowledgement and expression of the pain of this life. Paul is no stoic. He doesn't suppress the agony and experience and put on his H-A-P-P-Y face. But on the other hand, he longs. Uh, the word actually expresses a deep intensity of feeling. It's to do with having a great affection or desire for something, a longing or yearning. And, and so what you've got is both at the same time. If groaning is the powerful, intense negative emotion in relation to the pains of this life, groaning. Longing and yearning is the powerful, intense, positive emotion in relation to the hope of the next life. And the point is that it's only resurrection. It's only resurrection in glory that will enable you, that will actually allow you to do both of those things, groaning and yearning at the same time in this world and not just one without the other. And, and that is a unique gift that we have in this hope. You see, um, our Western secular culture has by definition no ultimate hope at all. It can't. A, a secular culture has as its fundamental view that all there is is stuff and stuff rots and decays and dies, and that's all there is to it. There is no, there can be no ultimate hope on this view. And so secular culture can groan, but it can't yearn. It can, it can rage, rage against the dying of the light. It can thrash and twist 
and turn and grasp, but it's always with a desperation of racing against the clock, a, racing, a race which it inevitably always must lose. There can be no sustained joy that comes from yearning, just temporary highs. On the other hand, the uh, spiritual Eastern cultures do have a form of hope, but it's one which is ultimately about the release of the spirit from the prison house of the body. And so they can yearn for that release. Yes, there's yearning, but there can't be any real groaning. There's no place for it. Because on the Eastern spiritual view, the body is nothing. It's just a set of dirty clothes over a magnificent soul. It's to be discarded when the time comes, if not as soon as possible. And to groan would be to ascribe to it a dignity that it doesn't deserve. Do you see? It's only the hope of resurrection that allows you both to groan and to yearn. And being able to do both of those at the same time is crucial to living well in this world. You see, without that ability, you get stuck either in despair or in disengagement. And, and it's worth asking yourself, uh, which way do you typically lean? You see, it may be that you're a person for whom groaning comes much more naturally than yearning. You're all too aware of how bad, bad things are. How hard, hard things are. And, and, and actually expressing that is not difficult for you at all. Complaint and dissatisfaction and demandingness, these are your native languages with little to no hopefulness and buoyancy and confidence. In which case, hear the word of the Apostle to you tonight. He, he, we, we were always confident, he says. We do have confidence. We have a hope that is stronger than death, that sustains and guides and upholds through all the ups and especially through all the downs of life. And the Apostle says to those of us whose native language is groaning, yearn, give expression to hope, know with a glorious confidence and live in the reality and joy that there'll be an end to groaning. Don't get stuck there. But then it may be that you're a person for whom yearning comes much more naturally than groaning. Perhaps life is relatively easy for you. And you relatively easily assume that the future won't be that much different. It's just a steady progression from one satisfactory state to the next. As things just fall into place. In which case, hear the word of the Apostle to you tonight. Groan. Don't insulate yourself from the realities of life, either your own life, or if you happen to have a fairly Cinderella existence, then the realities of other people's lives. Weep with those who weep. Groan with those who groan. Allow their pain 
to touch your soul. Do you, do you see what real, deep, substantial resurrection hope allows? A genuine engagement with the reality of a broken world and yet not despairing. Not despairing. But that's not the final word. You see, hope also empowers. And what it empowers, not just permit, but what it empowers in us is a poise and purpose in the gap. I said earlier that uh, the great temptation in the gap is to turn inward. Uh, one way or another, uh, either in demandingness or in cynicism. And it's only resurrection hope that can keep you turned outward, loving and serving and giving. And you see how the apostle uh, puts it in verse 8. He says, yes, we do have confidence and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. This is what hope empowers. A consistent, clear, straightforward direction in life. Set steadfastly in accordance with his hope. Whatever his circumstances, comfortable or dire, brimful of energy and joy or utterly unbearably crushed, his aim is to please the Lord. To do the kind of thing and to say the kind of words and to be the kind of person who is an ingredient in the divine happiness. Now, of course, the alternative to uh, pleasing Jesus is to please yourself. Uh, to do the thing that brings uh, instant gratification, the, the chocolate high or, or the retail therapy or the deliciously unkind word. Or if it's not to please yourself, it's to please someone else. To set your hopes on the approval and admiration of that someone special, uh, whether that's a spouse or a boss or a rival. But, but you, you do know, don't you, at least if you don't, you surely soon will, that pleasing yourself will never work because you'll never come to an end of it. It will never be sufficient. And pleasing someone else will also never work because when you get it, it just evaporates like fairy floss in your mouth. And so you flip and flop around in life, unsettled and unsettling, without real direction and making little to no impact. Paul says, no, he has an aim. It's an aim that's absolutely consistent with his hope. His hope is to be with the resurrected Jesus, resurrected himself. And so his aim is to please that one. To, to run as a grid across all he is and does and says. All the decisions he makes all the patterns he allows to creep into his soul, is this going to be pleasing to Jesus? Is this going to be pleasing to Jesus? Now notice the spiritual dynamic that kind of is operative in him. Uh, on the one hand, Paul uh, speaks of a profound assurance. 
He knows that God is at work in and through him. He knows that the one who has prepared him for this hope is God himself and has given him the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit as a guarantee. Um, the, the idea here of guarantee is like a deposit. When you put a deposit on a house, no one can take that away from you. You've put the deposit on and God has put his deposit on you and no one can take you away from him. So there is beautiful assurance. But at the same time, that assurance does not degenerate into complacency, a kind of take-it-for-granted assumption that stops bothering to try. No, the, the apostle knows that he, like every single one of us, will appear, must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That he will cast a scrutiny over your life. But, but notice that fact doesn't drag him into insecurity and fear. It doesn't undo the first point. No, he, he knows that the one who is the judge is also the one who died for him. And so there's this beautiful spiritual power in Paul's life. His hope serves as a compass in all the confusion and all the darkness and all the pain that he's currently undergoing. He doesn't lose balance. He doesn't get knocked off course. He doesn't turn inward. Whether he's up or down or here or there or at home or away, in the big moments and in all the tiny little ordinary moments of life, he has a clarity, an aim to please Jesus. To please Jesus. Let's draw these uh, threads together. We're, over the last uh, few weeks, we've really worked hard, uh, I think, to look clear and straight at the things that make life painful. We don't want to avert our gaze. We don't, we're not interested in pretending uh, or avoiding the hard questions. We want to know how we can stand in the gap. And Paul has given uh, us the final piece of the puzzle this evening, that it is hope, a hope as deep and rich and substantial as glorious resurrection from the dead that can empower us to handle hardship well. And here's a beautiful summary of what this life looks like. And I think it could kind of stand as a heading for this whole extended section that we've been on for the last uh, three weeks. He says, we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. You see, if the, if the only things that, that touch you and speak to you and impress themselves upon you that, that get into your heart and soul, if the, if, if the only things that connect with you, whether good or bad, the pains or the joys, are the things that you see, then you won't survive. You won't go the distance. Not with any clarity and substance to your life. You'll be tossed to and fro. You'll be up and down and all over the place and inevitably, more or less, you'll turn inward and shrivel. But when you walk by faith, that is by a trust in the good promises and purpose of God, then it changes everything. 
When you do relationships by faith, not by sight, it means that you can forbear and forgive finding a way through problems rather than just sort of ditching and moving on because you know that you have been forgiven every bit as much and then some by a holy God. When you pray by faith rather than by sight, it means you'll keep bringing to the Lord those things that are on your heart without giving up because you know that your Father in heaven knows what you need before you even ask him, but he loves to hear you ask. When you do church by faith, not by sight, it means that you'll continue to serve and welcome and invite even the really difficult people because you know that we're all just sinners under grace that there is no us and them in church it's just us under Jesus and when you do generosity by faith and not by sight You'll give yourself again and again and again your time and your money and your space and your energy until it hurts and more. Knowing the promise of Jesus is that God never doesn't notice. He never doesn't notice. And that it's all stored up for you in heaven. So as you begin to process and then and, and we want to take this word into our hearts, it's worth kind of seeing if there are points at which you've turned inward in your life. That relationships, perhaps. Spheres, work, home, family, friends. Are there points at which the pressure of the gap has actually been too much for you? That it's got you and that it's turned you. Because when you walk by faith, when you make as your guide the unseen things, not the seen things, you don't lose heart. You have an unbreakable confidence that everything that is mortal and fragile and weak will in the goodness of God and the grace of Jesus Christ be swallowed up by life for all eternity. And so you set as your aim consistently, clearly to please him. Amen.